So I've been wearing glasses since about the fourth grade, okay? I had contacts for a while in high school and college, but glasses for the better part of 50 years, okay? In fact, let me just kind of show you kind of through the years some, some glasses that I've had. I, I kind of went the wire rim route for a while, you know, very subtle, okay? That was kind of a thing. I, uh, I kind of went the, uh, the more dominant route, you know, with, you know, kind of a, a, a little more bold look. Um, I got my linens here. These were actually glasses first and then made them into sunglasses later on, okay? Uh, that was kind of a thing for a while. Now, these you're really going to appreciate. These were glasses before they were sunglasses, okay? A um, little more of a statement here with these. I hang on to these for whenever I go to 70s parties, okay? I mean, I'm just saying... And uh, in case you're not sure, that really is Gail and me, okay? I mean, it really is us, okay? So you, sometimes you just got to have, all right, the look, all right. Um, but, but, but there are other things, right? If you get your eyes dilated, you get some really stylish glasses at the eye doctor, okay? I'm just saying. Um, we've got here safety glasses. And then it's not always glasses, right? Sometimes you need to be able to see farther away, and so we kind of have the binocular look. Sometimes you're trying to see up close, right? And so, you know, you need to be able to really zoom in that way. Sometimes uh, I appreciate this view. Um, this is the only time I will ever have you in the crosshairs, okay, uh, is, is like that. But I'm saying that, that comes in handy sometimes. And, and then for me, I mean, I spend a lot of time looking through one of these, uh, a lens for a camera. There's all these different kinds of lenses that we use for lots of different things. Now, the deal is there are some people who wear glasses just as a fashion statement. I mean, there's, it's clear lenses. There's nothing different about it. But I think that's, that's fairly unusual. Most people, especially with glasses, put them on because they need to see in some way differently, right? The, the primary purpose of glasses is to see the world in a, in a different way. Maybe you need sunglasses because you need to darken the light because it's just too bright for you. Or maybe you need, like me, you need corrective lenses because you need to sharpen things up that you're trying to see. Maybe we need lenses that will bring far things close. Maybe we need lenses that will make little things bigger. But any way you look at it, when you use lenses, the whole point is to change how you see everything else. Right? I don't wear these lenses because I'm looking at the glass in front of my eye. It changes how I see everything else. So I want to ask you a really important question this morning. What is your lens to see the world? I mean, seriously, what is the lens for you that impacts how you see everything else? What kind of glasses do you put on figuratively to understand culture? To, to evaluate religion, maybe to determine what steps to take in your life, who to trust, how to choose a path for the future. We've said last week that every path is going somewhere, and so we need to choose very carefully. What kind of filter do you use to, to, to discern the path that you need to be on? What's your lens to evaluate everything that comes along? You know, truthfully, for some people, their lens to the world is Fox News or CNN or NPR or BBC, whatever it is. It's the news feed that shapes how they see everything. Maybe for you, it's the talk in the break room at work, and you're just constantly hearing these voices, and it kind of impacts and influences 
how you look at everything else. Maybe the lens for you is conversations that you have with family and with friends, people that you really trust. Maybe, maybe your lens is how you were raised and it's what your parents believed and that just kind of took over in your life. Maybe your lens is the sermons you listen to, which would be both gratifying and terrifying if, if that's the case for me. What is your lens to see the world? We're studying through the book of 2 Timothy this month. We're not, not verse by verse. We're not covering every single thought. But we're seeing some big picture concepts that the Apostle Paul wrote about. This is Paul's last letter that he wrote in the New Testament before he was executed. At the end of the letter, he encourages his protege, his young son in the faith, Timothy, to come before winter, he says. If Timothy waits until spring, it's going to be too late. And so in this series, we're calling it Come Before Winter. It's about not putting off important things that need to be done. That might be something with your body, physically, some care that it needs. It might be emotionally. It might be relationally, a relationship you need to repair. It might be spiritually. There's an autumn of opportunity before us that could lead to a winter of despair and regret unless we say yes to God, yes to whatever this opportunity is that we need to respond to. Today, what I want to challenge you to think about is the lens that you look through that then impacts how you see everything else. I want to read to you some verses from 2 Timothy chapter 3. There's a lot in this chapter we're not even going to talk about today. But there are some verses that are really, really important. Starting in verse 14, Paul tells Timothy, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. How from infancy you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul tells Timothy to continue in what he has learned, what he has become convinced of. And he's been taught this since childhood. It's why children's ministry is so important. And he says it's about learning the Holy Scriptures. Now, the Holy Scriptures here would have been the books of the Old Testament for sure, the law and the prophets, they're often referred to as. But also, by this time that Paul is writing, some of the Gospels about Jesus have been written. Some letters of the New Testament are being passed around. And so, those writings were revered as the Word of God as well. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. So the Holy Scriptures are what we know of today as, as the Bible. And, and we've said before that the Bible is not one book. It's a library of 66 books. There are 39 books in the Old Testament. There are 27 books in the New Testament. And these 66 books tell us God's plan for the world. God's work in the world, God's salvation of the world through Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Friends, I would suggest to you that the Bible is the lens through which we see the world. 
that everything else becomes more clear when we put our Bible glasses on. Now, how does that work? How does the Bible bring clarity to everything else? How, how is the Bible a lens? Well, I told you I was going to mix my metaphors today, so here we go. I think a lot of people look at faith like one piece of the pie. Right? Not a piece of pie, not, not peach pie, blueberry pie, or, or, or apple pie, a piece of the pie, right? It's like if your life and mine was a pie chart, you might have a, a work piece of the pie, you might have a family piece, you might have a leisure piece, you might have an exercise piece, that's more of a sliver, uh, but, but all, those, all those pieces of pie kind of come together to make up our lives. So, so the reality is that some people also have a faith piece, one part of the whole. But the thing is, and, and this is central to what we're talking about today, God does not want to be a piece of the pie. God wants to be the whole pie. See, he wants faith to define everything else. He wants Jesus to be Lord over everything else. He wants the Bible to help us see and understand everything else. I would say that he's the umbrella over everything else, but we don't need any more metaphors. Okay, I'm just saying he's the whole pie. Okay, he is the whole thing. Listen again to verse 14 of our text. Chapter 3, 2 Timothy. Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you have learned it. We, we know from earlier, that's his mom and his grandma. From infancy, you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible gives us wisdom to find salvation through faith in Christ. It is our lens through which we see everything else more clearly. I mean, you think about the Bible throughout history. It has been banned and burned. It's been studied and scrutinized. It has been translated and taken around the world. And few people are neutral about the Bible if they have any exposure to it at all. Most people either love it or at least respect it, or it seems like they hate it with a passion, right? They want to burn it, ban it, get rid of it. What is it about the Bible that makes it so unique and different than every other book in history. Why do we as Christians stake our lives on the message that it reveals? Well, think about it. For believers, the Bible is our sole source of authority, right? Everything we know about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and eternity, everything we know about the church and the purpose of our lives and how to live lives that honor God, I mean, all that comes from the Bible. It makes that book, this book, so incredibly important. So again, the Bible is a library of how many books? 66, right? It was written by approximately 40 different authors over a span of about 1,500 years. That makes it unique right there. Different portions of it were written in three different languages. It comes from three different continents. And all this diversity, all these different people writing about so many diverse topics over such a long span of time, 15 centuries. And yet there's this consistent message in the Bible. It is unlike any other book. 
On top of all that, there are prophecies in the Old Testament, so many of them that are fulfilled in the New Testament. There are thousands of ancient manuscripts that we have to compare to one another that we can feel very confident that the book we have today is what was written long ago. Archaeology continues to validate historical accounts of things that are talked about in Scripture. Numerous ancient sources written not by people who are followers of God, but, but by people who were not believers in God, and yet they write historically about things that we know happened in the Bible. And it gives validity to the biblical record. Many people try to say, well, the Bible, it's just a bunch of myths. It doesn't hold up to science or history or archaeology. And ironically, those are the very things that are giving the Bible more and more credibility the more that we learn. I love how Paul sums up what the Bible or, or, or what God's Word is in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture, he says, is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The New Living Translation says it this way, all scripture is inspired by God. It's useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what's right. All scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. I mean, you think about it. We believe, as followers of Jesus, that the Bible, the Bible is, is the Word of God. It's written by humans, yes, but it was revealed to them. It was delivered to them. It was protected, and it was guided by the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible's a gift from God so that we can know Him better, so that we can live better lives, so that we can see everything else more clearly. Now, with Scripture itself, within the Bible, there are three more metaphors that I'm going to mix into the, uh, to the potion here that shows us why the Bible is the lens through which we see everything else. For one thing, Scripture says the Bible is a mirror for reflection. It helps us see ourselves as we truly are. Listen to James chapter 1, verse 23. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, and he continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. James says that God's word is a mirror in our lives. It helps us look at ourselves. It helps us look into ourselves to see what's really there. Then we can address areas that need work. I mean, think of it like this. I'm guessing that everybody who got up this morning and came to church, and that would be pretty much all of you in this room, you did that, right? You looked at a mirror at some point this morning before you left the house, right? I'm not complaining about that. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm, we appreciate it, right? And we're glad that I did that too. You look at your reflection. You did some evaluating. You wanted to see what needed work before you came to church, right? And most people look in the mirror. They figure out what needs fixing. They fix what needs fixing. They may glance later to make sure that what they fixed is still fixed. And that's kind of why we have mirrors. And there's nothing wrong with that unless we become obsessive about it. It's what mirrors are for. They help us improve ourselves to examine and correct. But James says, imagine this guy, he looks in the mirror, 
And I mean, there's some glaring problems. His hair is a mess. He's got breakfast all over his shirt. His dentures are in upside down. I don't know about him. This guy's a mess. And instead of trying to fix anything, he just kind of casually glances and then he goes away and he does not address any of the problems. He got the information that he needed. He just didn't do anything with it. See, when God speaks through the Bible, there are some things that are very affirming that we need to hear. I love you even though you're a mess, God says. I want to adopt you into my family because you're my pride and joy. I sent Jesus to die for you because we talked about it and we could not bear the thought of eternity without you. Man, God wants you to hear those things and they're in the Bible. But he also wants you to hear, you know what, you've got to work on your thought life. It's a wreck. You really need to get your eating under control. If you don't stop criticizing your wife in public, I'm going to strike you with lightning. <laughs> he doesn't say it exactly, but, but that's the idea, right? There's some things he says, look, you've got to work on this. This isn't right. God loves you so much. He, he told you about that in the Bible because he wants you to know how much he loves you. But he also loves you too much and me too much to leave us in the mess we're in. And so he tells us those things too. See, in the same passage where James says the Bible's a mirror, he also says get rid of all moral filth. Avoid the evil that is so prevalent. Control your tongue. Look after orphans and widows in their distress. In other words, your faith should change some things about how you live your life. It's like it's a mirror. It's also a lens that impacts how you see everything else. But see, what happens sometimes for us, if we're honest, is that we read things in the Bible that we're not comfortable with, so we skip over those. We don't want to read those. Let's go back to the mercy and the grace and the love. Let's not read that part about change because of your sin. We don't want to talk about that. Right before James said the Bible's a mirror, he said in James 1.22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So it's a, it's a mirror for reflection, but the Bible's also a sword for protection. It helps us see our enemy and stand against our enemy. You know, swords have been the weapon of choice for the better part of 5,000 years. They have been made of bronze, copper, iron, and steel. The Roman Empire perfected the steel spatha. It's a weapon that was virtually unchanged for over a thousand years. And even today, soldiers in many armies are commanded to fix bayonets, adding blades to bullets if there's hand-to-hand -hand combat. Throughout history, nearly every little boy and little girl has used a stick or a broom handle or a ruler or anything they can get their hands on for sword play, right? A girl I dated in high school went to college and she studied fencing for physical education. I was kind of glad we'd broken up by then. I'm not sure. I don't want a girlfriend waving a sword around my face. I'm just saying. You know, in, in the, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, there's Sting that Bilbo Baggins had and and Luke Skywalker had his lightsaber and swords have been making a killing for a long long time probably since the time of Noah in the Old Testament when our sons Aaron and Daniel turned 13 on their birthdays I gave each one of them a sword and and it was symbolic of the journey that they were on to manhood and I put a little plaque on the sword 
from 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be a man of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. Swords can represent warfare and bloodshed and death, but they also represent authority and strength and character and courage and truth. When the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, he talked about the armor of God. And we've talked about that before. He said that our our bodies, our hearts, are protected by the breastplate of righteousness. And he said we wear the helmet of salvation to guard our minds. We carry the shield of faith to thwart the attacks of the enemy. But he also says we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Our, Our weapon against the enemy is the Bible. But friends, let's be honest, you can't use what you don't know, right? A weapon that sits on the bookshelf or is never opened, you don't know how to use it, it's not going to be very, very effective as a weapon, just doesn't do much good. But the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, and that's why we need to take some time to be reading the Word, and we need to be studying the Bible, even memorizing some, some passages, I think I've told you before, when I was 22 years old, I was preaching right out of Bible college in a little country church in Madisonville, Kentucky. And I met an older woman in the community. She did not go to our church, but she was an elementary school teacher. Her name was Mildred Vinoy. Mildred had been teaching school for approximately 100 years. She was legally blind and had been since she was a teenager. She was so sharp in the classroom. I had friends who said, man, I I had her in school. You couldn't get away with anything. You'd think the woman's almost blind, but she could hear everything. She was just really sharp. But anyway, when she was in elementary school, she developed this degenerative eye condition. And they told her, by the time you're in high school, you're not going to be able to see much of anything at all. I want you to imagine first hearing that as a child. And then I want you to imagine what she did When she found that out, she immediately started memorizing scripture. She memorized hundreds of verses because she knew she didn't have much time. She invited me to come to her house once a week to lead a little devotion uh, with anybody in her class that wanted to come. These elementary kids would come to her her little trailer, and we'd sit around in a circle, and I would share some scripture with them, and then she would do Bible drills with them, what we used to call sword drills. She would would say a scripture reference, and man, they would race to see who could get to it first, and they'd start reading, and sometimes she'd go, that's not right, and they'd have all a try again, and they would would find the verse, And, 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 and it was a game, but she did it all from memory. She was unbelievable, one verse after another, after another, after another, because she hid his word in her heart. It's our lens to see everything else. After Jesus was baptized, the Bible says he went out into the wilderness, he fasted for 40 days, and during that time, relentlessly, Satan came and tempted him. And we read about three temptations of the many that he received during those 40 days. And you remember what Jesus said every time Satan tempted him? Jesus said, it is written. And he quoted scripture every time because his fight against temptation was the word of God. That was his weapon, his sword of the spirit. And so I think it's a fair question. I know it's a good question for me, maybe not for you, but for me, how do I handle temptation? Am I just trying to do it on my own? 
Am I wielding the sword of the Spirit, or have I just given up and I just give in to everything because I know I can't fight it? We have this weapon that's been given to us. So there's a mirror for reflection, and there's a sword for protection. There's also a lamp for direction, right? The Bible helps us choose our path and follow it wisely. According to the internet, so you know it's true, there are over 100,000 self-help books on the market today. Over 100,000. There are 5,000 books about how to write self-help books. I mean, come on, how much help do we need? Well, there are Bibles, let's be honest, in our homes. They're all over the country, and they're gathering dust on a bookshelf, or they're a decoration on the coffee table, the most helpful book of all time. And I just wonder how much help we're getting from it. King David wrote in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp for my feet. It's a light for my path. Think about it. The Bible helps us see our feet and it helps us find our path. I can see myself and it helps me see where I'm going. It helps me see how my life intersects with the path that I have chosen. It's the lens that makes everything else more clear. Why would we not want to read a book like that? Why would we let that kind of wisdom go to waste? I mean, for instance, the Bible doesn't say this is the person you're supposed to marry, but it gives advice like don't be yoked together with somebody who's an unbeliever. It suggests that maybe if you're a follower of Christ, there's some people you should not marry. The Bible doesn't say choose this career, but it says whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If my work is in the name of the Lord, there might be some things I ought not do. If I'm a follower of Jesus, the Bible doesn't say to specifically only watch PG movies or PG 13 movies. You know, it doesn't say this is the music to listen to or these are the books that we read, but it does say whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is true, whatever is admirable, think about those things. And you say, maybe as a follower of Christ, there's some things I ought not read or watch or listen to. The Bible is a lamp that gives direction. And have you, have you thought about this? The, the, the brighter the light, the less you need a little light. But when it's dark, even a little light makes a big difference. You know, we have these lamps up here on stage. They're for ambiance. Okay, they're not really helping anybody. I just think they're cool. <laughs> but, but if you walk in here at nighttime and there is no light at all and one little lamp's on, it makes a huge difference. Game changer. If you're out on a sunny day and you light a candle... <laughs> You barely notice it at all. If you're in a cave and you light a candle, it lights up the room. Because the darker the environment, the more the light shines. Friends, the world is getting darker and darker and darker. And our light, the light of God's word, the light that shines through us, shines brighter and brighter. So let me mix our metaphors all up again, and we'll wrap up here, okay? The Bible is a mirror for reflection, it is a sword for protection, and it is a lamp for direction, but ultimately it is the lens through which we see everything else, everything else. How we see ourselves, how we look at our relationships, our suffering, the suffering in the world, our failures, our need for God, all of that we see through the lens of Scripture. Bottom line today is simple. The Bible is our lens that makes everything else clear. 
The Bible is our lens that makes everything else more clear. It's why in this, is this another metaphor? It's why in this autumn of opportunity, we want to immerse ourselves in God's Word. Now, I've, I've told you over and over, if you've been around for a while, one of my all-time favorite books is the book The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. It is a brilliant, brilliant book. And I've used story after story from her, just an amazing woman. When it comes to the Bible, this is one of my favorites. I've probably shared it before. Corey and her family lived in Holland before World War II. They were Christians, but when the Jews were under attack, they hid Christians in their home. And when the Nazis invaded, they were betrayed, the Ten Booms were. They were captured. They were imprisoned and ultimately sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp. Corey's father died before they ever even got to the camp. Her sister Betsy died there. She eventually was released after years, and she began to write books and travel the world and share her story. And, and, and Corey told how when they first were arrested, they were able to smuggle just a portion of the Bible into that first prison camp in a little sack that she kept tied with a string around her neck under her dress. And they were able to read the Bible together. When they were moved to Ravensbrook, all personal items were confiscated. The women were searched to make sure that nothing personal made it past the gate. She said the pouch around her neck with that portion of Bible in it was so prominent you could have seen it across the market. And yet she and Betsy knew that God's truth was what was keeping them going. It was their only light in the unbelievable darkness of that time. It was their lens to make sense of the world. And so they prayed for a miracle. And she said every woman in line that day as they went into Ravensbrook was searched thoroughly except Corey. Every one of them. She said her sister Betsy in front of her was, was touched over all of her body to search her. The woman behind her was searched twice. Not a hand was laid on Corey. And she walked into that concentration camp with God's word around her neck. She and Betsy shared God's truth with anybody who would listen. She said the lice was so bad in their barracks, the guards didn't want to come in. And it freed them up to talk about Jesus as much as they wanted. She said every night after a day of grueling, back-breaking labor, they would turn to God's word for comfort and for strength. And I just want to read some of her words to you. This is what she said. Life in Ravensbrook took place on two separate levels, mutually impossible. One, the observable external life grew every day more horrible. The other, the life we lived with God grew daily better. Truth upon truth, glory upon glory. She said, sometimes I would slip the Bible from its little sack with hands that shook. So mysterious had it become to me. It was new. It's like it had just been written. I marveled sometimes that the ink was dry. I had believed the Bible always, but reading it now had nothing to do with belief. It was simply a description of the way things were, of hell and of heaven, of how men act and how God acts. 
She said, from morning until lights out. Whenever we were not working, we were not in ranks for roll call, our Bible was the center of an ever-widening circle of help and hope. I love this picture. She said, we were like waifs clustered around a blazing fire. That we would gather about it and we would hold out our hearts to its warmth and its light. She said, the, the blacker the night around us grew, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the Word of God. The blacker the night around us grew, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the Word of God. It's not just a book. It's not just a library of books. God, on His throne, wanted to talk to you. And he wanted to talk to me. And so he gave us his word. And friends, it is the lens that makes everything else in your crazy life and mine more clear. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for all your gifts to us. You, you, you have provided for us in such an abundant, beautiful way. And sometimes, Lord, we get so caught up in the, the houses and the jobs and the food and the money and, and just all the things that become part of daily life that we forget one of the most profound gifts of all, that you gave us your word, that we can, that we can dig deep and that we can learn about you and we find out your truth and we find hope when life feels hopeless find peace when everything's chaos. We find the assurance that because of Jesus, we have eternal life and forgiveness and all that you've promised if we surrender to him. So God, may we take seriously this word that you've provided. May we seek to honor you in all ways, Lord. We just thank you and love you in Christ's name. Amen.